they don't want to fund because it, it's the same amount of work, only there's no money in it for them on a, on a low-end um, mortgage. So there's this hole where the sellers can't sell because the buyers need financing, the seller needs cash, so we just get in the middle. We get in the middle, we give them their cash and we give them their financing. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? What's my favorite ice cream? I'm going to have to give you two answers there, Matt. I'm sorry about that, but I got to give you two answers because my favorite ice cream is going to be chocolate chip mint. But the reason I got to give you two answers is because if I'm at Ben and Jerry's, it's Chunky Monkey. Anywhere else in the world, it's chocolate chip mint. But Ben and Jerry's, I've been Chunky Monkey ever since I'm about 13 years old. Got it. Well, you live in the Virginia Beach area, which has got to have some good ice cream. So if we make our way that way, where's the best ice cream we can find over near your neck of the woods? Well, we do have we do have Ben and Jerry's ice cream shops out here at the beach. We also have Core Brothers. I don't know if it's a frozen custard. Um, they're from okay. uh, Ocean City, Maryland, I think, originally, and they're really good if you like frozen custard. Are they on the boardwalk there yeah. in Virginia Beach? Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Scott, tell our listeners, uh, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So I do lots of different things, but my main thing that I do and that I've been building on is what we call slow flips. And it's a strategy I started in 2011 after long trials and tribulations. We'll talk about that after, but where we buy houses like a car, and by that I mean we buy them on short-term financing, five years, like a car payment would be, but yet we sell them like a house, meaning on a 30-year mortgage. So we buy them like a car, we sell them on a house. I don't renovate, I don't rehab. The value that we provide is in the financing. That's my main business. I have 178 of them right now, and I have 79 of them are free and clear, and they'll all be free and clear within a five-year time frame because they're all on some level of 60 months or less left. Yeah, I uh, did a lot of research beforehand, and I'm super interested in your model. But before we get there, you actually got started in real estate back in 1994. So take us back to those days. How did you get started? So my very first house in... My first house I bought in 1994, and I was about to say, you're not old enough to remember, but there was a thing back then called non-qualifying assumptions, and you probably never even heard that term before. So they did away with them in 1987 for FHA and 89 for VA, but what it meant was anybody can take over your mortgage at any given time with the bank's blessing, and you just paid out the owner his equity or whatever you agreed on. And it basically like a sub two does now, except with the bank's blessing. Now the banks don't know about them when you do a sub two, right? And so there was a property, my brother found a flyer and sent it to me. I was mowing lawns at the time and it was $5,000 down and six seventy-five a month for a townhouse. And so I had 5,000, it was non-qualifying. And I'm like, I always say I could not qualify as good as anyone, right? I had, no, you know, I worked for myself mowing lawns, I had no credit. So I purchased this house and I had no interest in real estate. But then about two, three weeks after I moved into it, another house on the block came for sale. And there was a white sign, magic marker in front that said $2,000 down, take over payments. And I got pissed because I was like, damn it, they got me. I just paid 5,000 down. And mind you, I know it sounds stupid because I didn't know anything about the values. I didn't know anything about equity. I didn't know anything about the work. I knew nothing about anything other than mine was 5,000 down and this one was 2,000 down. So my genius brain decided, well, let's buy that one also, right? And the figure I'll cost average out to 3,500 each. And so I did that. And that was the first time I ever started to think about real estate because every month I put a tenant in there and every month the tenant would pay me and I would pay the mortgage and and I kept always thinking, I borrowed this money and they're paying it off. I borrowed it, they're paying it off. 
and it became an obsession of mine. Buy as many as I can. You know, I didn't have a, I didn't have a job. I didn't have mortgage ability. But back then, you can get non-qualifying assumptions. Much like I sell now, same type of thing. No credit and just pay a down payment and rent them out. And so I became crazy obsessed with it. And, and I, I never looked back. Why do you think they uh, got rid of non-qualified assumptions? You know, I think the reason they did is because rates... Because now, like if they did it, let's suppose they still had it, those 2 and 3% rates that they gave out these last couple of years would be in existence for 30 years, where the average American, I think the statistic is, it used to be five years, I think it's like three and a half years now, they say the average American moves, which means even though they gave out those rates, odds are they're not going to be around for that long, but if it was still non-qualifying, that rate, nobody's ever going to pay that off, right? It would stay in existence. So I think, and they make more money, I think, you know, I don't know the banking industry too well, but I think they make more money on their origination, selling off the loans, than actually servicing it long term. So I think that was probably what led to it. I was going to say origination fees. So for our listeners out there that might not know, when you go to Bank of America and you get a loan, they underwrite the loan, they charge a fee on it, and then they just sell it back to Fannie and Freddie. So they don't really even care after they get their little fee up front. And if you have an assumption, then obviously they're not in the middle of that and they want to find a way to put themselves in the middle of a transaction. Right. So um, you bought these two houses. Did you end up scaling your portfolio? Talk about us. How you, talk to us a little bit about how you scaled your portfolio. From yeah, there. so I became obsessed, right? With, and back then, this is a long time ago, back then your deals were in the Saturday newspaper. We didn't have the internet going on. So every Saturday is when the real estate section came out and I'd go through them and I would circle the non-qualifying assumptions, 2,000 down, 5,000 down, some as cheap as 500 down, right? People just want it out. And then I became obsessed with trying, you know, I didn't have any money, so I'm saving, coming up with as much as I can one at a time. And I got to about 20 properties by 2001. So I started in 94, by 2001 I had 20. And in 2001 was the very first time since I started, and actually even since the mid-80s, that we started having appreciation. And the reason I know that is because I was buying these in 94, 96, 97, 98 for the same price they bought them for in 85, 86. But in 2001, all of a sudden, my $65,000 townhouses were now 90 and 110. And so I started trying to learn now. And I'm going to real estate classes and seminars and reading books, and everybody taught that what I was doing was foolish, right? That um, you need to refi, pull out that equity and use that money to buy more. And so I did what everyone taught to do, which was I pulled out, I refied all my properties and I turned my 20 houses into 84 houses. And, um, and I had 84 houses and I had 84 mortgages. And, you know, and I was rocking and rolling and we were doing really good until 2007. And, you know, I know everybody always says it was 2008, and I'm like, I assure you it was 2007. I still have my QuickBooks. <laughs> I assure you it was 2007. And uh, they maybe, maybe it didn't make the news till 2008, but it was 2007. And in 2007, I had probably 30, 40% of my people stopped paying overnight. And uh, it wasn't that they were bad people. Everybody was losing their jobs. I mean, it was a rough time in the economy, and, and I had 84 mortgages. And so I, I had a lot of money saved at the time, almost a million dollars in cash. And I fought the good fight. And, um, and when I ran out of money, I lost 55 of my houses to foreclosure. And, you know, and that's rough on anybody, right? But it's especially rough. I'm driving an Escalade with big stop foreclosure on the side of it. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was rough because I'm the guy that stops foreclosures. And, um, and then I had to, you know, revamp and, and pivot and change directions and figure out what I did right, what I did wrong, what other people were doing. Because most people went out of business, went back to their jobs, right? 
they went back to IBM or wherever they were working before the boom. I didn't have that luxury because I didn't. I mowed lawns before the boom, and uh, and then there were still people who were crushing it. They were they were they were flourishing during this downtime, and so I started paying attention. What are they doing different? You know, and that's kind of what spawned off the slow flip from paying attention to what other people were doing. How did you um, unwind? You mentioned eighty four to fifty five. How did you unwind those uh, thirty properties there? No, I lost fifty five to foreclosure. I yeah. did, they didn't they didn't get unwound. The bank took them back. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Did you did you try to wholesale them or get rid of them? Like no, it was impossible, and that's why it, this is why I, I'm I'm really always cautious on people. There's so many stuff being taught today that people that started any time from 2008 to today, which is a long time. I talk about it like it was yesterday. Somebody the other day was like, Scott, you know that was 15 years ago. Like, calm down, that was a long time ago. And to me, it's yesterday. You couldn't sell them, and the reason is, let me give you for instance. I might have had a property that I owed 200 thousand on. When they were all getting crushed, there was no, the banks were going out of business left and right. So it was really hard to get a mortgage. But the ones that could, they were selling now for 120, 110. But I still owed 200. I have some actual to, tip, to give you real numbers. Because so many times people are like, no, the market only went down 30%. I'm like, no, the retail market might have went down 30%. I have specific houses that I owned and I owed, uh, there's, I'm going to tell you a scenario of one house in my head right now. I owed 150,000 on it when I bought it. I bought it for 120. It appraised at 199, and the bank loaned me 150 because they gave me an 80% mortgage. That's one of the houses that got foreclosed on. I bought that same house again from the bank. That house, not one like it, that actual house, and I still own it today. I bought it for 30 grand. Wow. And so it's some people are like, oh no, houses went down 20%. I said, no, they didn't. It might have been the retail market went down 20% or 30%, but no. I bought that. That house was appraised at 199, and I bought it as an REO for 30 grand, and I still own it today. Wow, wow. Well, before we get into the slow flip, I, I just kind of looking back on it. There's a lot of folks that hear horror stories like that and get nervous about investing in real estate and things like that. What What are some of the key learnings that you took from that that you would have done differently, knowing what you know now? Debt. I um I I was I followed that um the the age old advice that everyone teaches and still teaches about leverage and and um and how much more money you make by using the leverage model and and I regret it and if I was able to and you know my advice and this is what what was advised on me is you have to get in debt you know that's part of life it's part of business that unless you have ten billion dollars to start with you're going to get in debt but I I I regret getting in too much debt. I regret, even people say, oh, keep it at 80%. I'm like, screw 80%. I, I'm a free and clear guy, but I still got to be in debt because you got you buy new houses and you can't, unless you have 10 million, you're still going to be getting in debt. But I try and pay them off as fast as possible. And like with the, with the slow flip program we do now, we pay off all our houses within five years. And so that to me is five years is still five years. You have debt. However, it's over. Once it's over, it's over for good. And so that's my biggest thing. My biggest takeaway was, and you know, and that's kind of why I got into teaching. It's funny when you say that, Matt, is after the bust, when the seminars finally started coming back, I couldn't wait to go to see what they were teaching now. Because I'm like, well, obviously we know everything they were teaching didn't work. So let's see what they're teaching now. And I was shocked that they were teaching the same thing. I'm like, but you already know that there's a flaw in this. Now, mind you, the flaw may never happen again. I may just sound like a crazy person because it's been 15 years and it may be another 50 years, right? Then nothing ever happens and everybody who's using leverage is working out fantastic and they all make a bazillion dollars and say Scott was crazy and it's very possible. I just feel I'm too old to start over again. So I'm, I go the secure, 
you know, not leveraged model where I just pay them off. Yeah, you're going with their get rich slow plan, which That's there's exactly, nothing wrong with because you can still end up rich. Exactly it. I am definitely going with the, 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 the not get rich to tomorrow, but let's wait five years and then have freedom forever. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the slow flip a couple times. Um, so can you walk us through what is the slow flip? So I'm going to tell you, I'll tell you that exact house that I'm talking about, that, I t- that house I told you about that I still have, because this is kind of how stuff got originated. That house was available for $30,000 and not just available, but nobody was buying it. And I'm like, I'm the one who renovated it. I know what's in there, right? It was appraised at $199, but I couldn't buy it because I was dead to the banks. I had all these houses got foreclosed on. There was no retail market for a good year, year and a half. There was almost no retail market. And so I had to borrow private money. But I didn't want to borrow hard money because hard money requires you got six months, you got to sell it. So I was coming up with a program to basically get a mortgage on it. However, everybody I talk to about a mortgage wants to do 30 years. And I'm like, it's $30,000. I bought a car for $30,000 and it was five years. How come I got to buy a house that's got to be 30 years? And so we, we came up with a program to where we buy it like a car, where I do them on five-year mortgages. And all of our houses are bought on five-year mortgages. But then I instantaneously, and this is the second side to the slow flip, I instantaneously sell it with long-term owner financing. So that very house, I bought for the 30 on a five-year mortgage, but I turned around and sold it again at the 199 the same price that it appraised for two years prior, but 199 but with owner financing. So they didn't have to get a mortgage. They didn't have to qualify. They gave me 5000 down, and at the time, they were only giving me 875 a month. They still are because they're there, but at that same house, if it was to have turned over, now it would be probably 1400 a month. But they pay me eight seventy five a month. But if you do the math, eight seventy five a month for thirty years comes out to three hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. I only bought it for thirty, and I didn't pay a dollar for it because the private lender paid the whole thing, and they paid off the private lender. So it's it's a free house to me. I have one hundred and seventy eight of those now. So I mean, if you you can do the math on how they add up, I have seventy nine of them are free and clear. And um, it changes everything. The freedom aspect of it changes everything, where I used to have to go out every month and get deals to be able to make it to next month and get more deals. And now it's just a matter of managing payments. That's all we do. We're not managing tenants. We're managing just payments. That's it. Yeah, Kiyosaki talks about in his book, like rich people don't own things, they control things. And I think this is a perfect example of technically you don't own the house, right? Like you've got it on a seller. Well, you own it until the seller pays it off, I guess. But the seller is ultimately the buyer of that house. Correct. The buyer is the buyer of the house. They're going to end up owning the property, but you're controlling the financing and making the spread in the middle. Correct. We invent money and then we charge interest on that money, but we collect real payments every month on it, which is, it's awesome. So obviously you've heard this before, Scott, $30,000 house, that's impossible. I live in Los Angeles, California. Where are you finding $30,000 houses these days? Where are you finding your leads and those sorts of things? So I only hear that about three or 400 times a day. But um, the reality is, and it's funny, I just had an argument with somebody online, not an argument, but he said that basically that I'm out of my mind, you can't buy them. And I, and I made a video for him showing, I said, if you spent 10 seconds Googling instead of arguing, you would have seen, and I just went on Zillow and typed in a, a state under 30,000 and there was like 170 available. So in California, not possible. Oregon, not possible. Washington state, not possible. New York, it is possible. Not in, in upstate New York, it is possible, but we wouldn't do it anyway because we only buy in landlord friendly states. And um, so I'm in four different states and I have in the Midwest states, I probably have 50, 52, 53 houses. I've never seen one of them. I've never, 
other than pictures. I've never gone to see them. I don't, I don't inspect them. I, you know, I'll have somebody go and do pictures and video and then I'll have somebody market it and we fill it. But I, I don't see the houses. Everybody's like, well, I can't do it in my market. In my market, you can't buy a garage for 30,000, let alone a house, right? And, um, and I agree. And um, the majority of my houses are in my local market, but, but we can't really buy them much anymore because our market's come up so much, right? I started doing this in 2011 and they were abundant. I wish I was more aggressive back then, but I probably have 130, 140 in my market or 120 in my market, but I still buy some. I bought two this past month in my market, but it's harder and harder to find them. But there's so many states. I mean, I'm thinking about students in my program. They're doing it in Ohio and Alabama, Indiana, Kentucky, Missouri, Illinois. Um, There's a ton of states. Oklahoma, they do it. In Texas, they do it. And they... It's amazing how many houses are in the world. Because if you just say 30,000, people have this vision in their head of four sheets of plywood and a tarp on it, right? What can you get for 30 grand? Just the land shouldn't be 30 grand. And then when you look at some of these videos, you're like, holy crap, there's hardwood floors. How how is this thing 30 grand? But but they're there. Mine is not to ask how or why, just to know that it's in fact there. Yeah, I mean, I uh, follow an Instagram account that's like cheap cheap old houses and it's basically they highlight houses under a hundred thousand dollars which you know i i recognize thirty thousand dollars is different than a hundred thousand dollars but to your point i mean there's a lot of the, like twenty thousand dollars and they're just kind of in the middle of nowhere and they're a beautiful house looks like it functions well so there's a there's a hole in the marketplace and they're not even in the middle of nowhere like i i have a lot in a town called cahokia in illinois and I drove out, I was in there for a meeting. I was in St. Louis for a meeting. And I said, let me go drive by and see what this town even looks like. Because I already had like 35 out there. I said, let me drive by and see this town. It's a nice town. And I did videos and I was like, this is a nice, decent looking place. It wasn't in the middle of nowhere. The challenge is there's a hole in the marketplace. And that hole is the sellers need cash to sell. But the buyers need financing to buy. But most banks don't want to fund a twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 mortgage. Most of them have like a $50,000 minimum. And uh, they don't want to fund because it, it's the same amount of work, only there's no money in it for them on a, on a low-end um, mortgage. So there's this hole where the sellers can't sell because the buyers need financing, the seller needs cash, so we just get in the middle. We get in the middle. We give them their cash and we give them their financing. So let's, um, that's the house that you're looking for. Where do you find your private lenders? Talk us through that part of it. So that's the whole trick to the whole business because – and, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, that's great. You just said you're paying cash, but what if you don't have the cash? It's all about private lenders. And so I, I teach a method for it, but the, the short version is, and everybody, I, every time I say this, they're like, yeah, well, that's easy for you. I don't know anybody. We start, I always tell people, you start with friends and family, even though most of the time that's not going to be where your lenders come from. But we start there because, first off, it gets you comfortable with your pitch. Second off, we don't ever ask anybody to lend us money. So I, I'm going to tell you, and I, know, I don't know how much time you have, Matt, but I'm going to tell you kind of the basis of how, we, how I train for raising private money. Number one is we never ask, we offer. We offer an opportunity, we never ask, right? And on top of that, we don't offer it to the person we're talking to. We, we offer it to them. Do they know somebody who might be interested in making 12% secured by real estate? And because of the way we do it, we take away the ability to get rejected. And because that ability to be rejected is gone, it takes away the fear of rejection, which is usually what stops people from talking to people. Because they say, well, I know they don't have any money anyway, so why am I going to bother? They're just going to tell me no. But when you do it this way, they can't tell you no because you didn't ask them. And you, you maintain the power position because now it, it, it ends with them going, well, tell me about it. I might be interested. And then you're like, no, 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 not you. You're doing, uh, you're doing 
Bitcoin or whatever you're doing, right? Not you, yeah. but you know other people until they're like, no, tell me, I might. And then you can tell them about it. Yeah, and at the very least, they might think of somebody that's in their network and be like, I'm not the guy, but talk to Scott. Right, exactly. And it started you down that path, not the, like the Cutco Knives guys use, right? That they, they go one off to the next, to the next, to the next. Every single one of my lenders I have now stemmed from my first lender all the way in 2011 like i they all came from another lender who said who you know what are they talking about at a party they go to how much they're making on their investments right and he's like well this guy scott's been paying me 12 percent for six years can you see if he needs any new guys if he needs any more money and then i get a text or a call hey my joe my friend joe wants to do some lending are you looking for anybody else and it's just one after the other comes from the same pool of people so we got your um, house, we've got your private lenders. Now, where are you finding your buyers of your homes then? So the buyers are abundant. In, in the, we find them basically the same way everybody finds them. We find them through handwritten, poorly written signs, and I'll tell you about that in a second, and Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. And we sell, you know, owner will finance, no credit check, $5,000 down, eight seventy five a month. There is an abundance of buyers because they don't have a choice between these 10 houses they have a choice between your house or renting that's it because there's there's not an abundance of availability of people that are offering a program like we're offering so we typically our vacancies in the east coast properties last but anywhere between a couple hours to a day and in the the midwest properties i probably about two weeks to three weeks out there of them sitting vacant before they get occupied Gotcha. So when you buy these homes, you ought to, it sounds like you have a list of buyers in your potential database that you can slide in there immediately. So these aren't really sitting vacant for long. And, and more importantly, it doesn't sound like you're doing any rehab to these as well. We're doing no rehab. We don't even clean them up. We don't do anything. But something I didn't tell you, Matt, is the majority of our buyers are investors. They are investors who are the way I used to be. They're buying what they can buy with financing. If it's 3000 down or 5000 down, they're buying as conventional rentals for 30 years, and they're renting it to somebody else, collecting the payment every month, and mailing it to the bank. And we're the bank. And so the, the majority are investors. My number one investor with me has been with me over 10 years now. He's got 13 properties with me. And, and then I have a ton that have five and six properties. And they're constantly texting, let me know when you get another one. I'm ready for another one. And uh, th that's my favorite. Those are my favorite people because they're renovating them. They're renting them. Most of them do Section 8 or they do some kind of rooming house or they do a government program. But they're making good money. We're making good money. And everybody, everybody wins. So um, are there any regulations around this? It, it almost sounds like a wrap um, in that sense. It's yeah, not I, a wrap. We, we do it on an agreement for deed. There are regulations if you're, there's Dodd-Frank. So if you're selling to um, homeowners, you're limited to three per year per entity. Um, if you're selling to investors, there's no regulation. Now you can do more than three per year per entity if you put them through underwriting, um, which we don't because we primarily sell to investors anyway. And when you sell to investors, there's no regulation. Gotcha. Now, so will you actually own the home? Let me start there. Do you own the home and you're selling it back? We, when, when we purchase the home, the deed goes in our name. And then when we sell it, the deed stays in our name until they pay it off. Gotcha. So, so the way I explain it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. The way I explain it to the buyers when they're asking, oh, what's the difference between this or if I got a mortgage? The way I explain it is I tell them, if you got a mortgage with Bank of America, the deed goes in your name and then you pay for 30 years. When you get a, when you get a house from us, you pay for 30 years and then the deed goes in your name. It's the exact same end result. Gotcha. Now, do you, the owner, uh, not your buyer, um, have to have insurance and how are you making sure they're paying for insurance, the buyer is paying for insurance? So 
I, I, you're going to say this is stupid. I double insure my properties for the first five years. And the reason is, and I know it's stupid. I'll tell you why it's stupid because you can so. only make one claim. It's two yeah. policies. You can only make one claim. So it is a waste. But the reason I do it, we, our buyers get their own policy. So we, they're able to get a homeowner's policy based on our contract. The reason I get a policy also is because we ha- in the first five years, we have a lender. And if your buyer doesn't make their payment or they're getting ready to not pay, they automatically send out a letter to the lien holder. Well, I don't want my lender to get that letter. So that's why I pay for it, just to keep the peace of mind for my lender. My lenders have 1,000% peace of mind. And even though you can pay it and stop it, I don't want, if my buyer didn't pay their insurance on time, I don't want my lender to receive that letter. So I pay another policy just to keep my lender satisfied and, um, and protected and never get that letter. Gotcha. Second question on that is, does, how do you make sure that the buyer is paying the tax, the property taxes on it? Because we pay it. We, we yeah. learned the hard way. Yeah. In the yeah. beginning, I used to have them pay it and guess what? They don't yeah. pay it. <laughs> so do you it put, bake that into your um, in, into selling the payment. agreement? Yeah. We work payment? it into the payment. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah. what, what am I missing here? Where are some of the pitfalls you've learned? Because I mean, this sounds really, really interesting to me. Where, where so, are the challenges? Well, the, one of the big challenges, you, you have to secure the private lenders because without the private lenders, then you're no different than, than I always re- reference this guy as 2005 Scott, which is old me, right? You're trying to buy anything you can with, own, with owner financing. If you don't have the private money secured, then you need the funding just like your buyers do now. So you're in a different position. Another big pitfall is um, being too passive. And what I mean by that is uh, we try and be strict in a positive way because People, if, you're, if, if, if payments are due on the 1st and they go late on the 5th, right, um, and then you're supposed to file, at least in the markets I'm in, by the 15th. But I know people that have been like, well, but they say they next month this and next month that. And next thing you know, they're five grand behind before they have a file. Well, you kind of did them a disservice by being passive because now they can't come up with the money. It's so much money. But if you were strict and you said, nope, on the 15th I'm filing, don't worry, I'll cancel it before I court as long as you pay but you file just to start that clock, now they still only have to come up with 900 bucks and they can do that. And so I think that's one of the biggest things I've seen people where they get themselves into a bind is where they try and, try and work with people. And mind you, I work with people too, but you have to still put it on a calendar, if you start the clock ticking, because if you don't, you're going to be hurting them because it's going to be so deep now they can't get out of it. Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, we talked about insurance, ta- how you handle the taxes. What other documents would I need if I was going to pursue something like this? Basically, the agreement for deed is a big thing. And, and we've, we've customized I had a lawyer work on it for a while. And basically, I told him, I said, I want you to write this up as if you're going to court to defend it. And uh, so I had him write up a really good one with a ton of disclaimers because I want them, basically, I want them protected and I want us protected. And I tell them, I said, as long as you make your payment, you will never see me again. It's their house. The only time you ever hear from us again is if you are delinquent. And, um, and so you need a really good agreement for deed. We, we're in multiple states, so we've had to redo them in multiple states to, uh, to make it really good for each state compliant with that state's law. Barring that, the, um, when you're borrowing private money, there's going to be a note and deed of trust, but you don't prepare that. Your attorney, whoever's doing the closing, is going to prepare that for them. And um, there's not a whole lot of documents you're going to need. Got it. Got it. So talk us through um, Pastor, I'm sorry, Master Investor Academy. Um, you've started a cohort to help people learn this strategy. Why'd you start it? What do I get out of the program? Talk to us a little bit about that. So I started it in 2015 is when I started doing coaching and training and it started just live and local. I did live events here locally 
And I actually grew to really like it a lot, but I was only doing local and it became overwhelming because everybody I had in my local market, we had over 170 people in my local market that I was working with. And now we're almost cannibalizing because we're going after the same deals and, and I'm going on appointments with them and I'm selling them. And, and so just recently I've changed to where I haven't done a live event now since May of last year. And I started doing an online program, which is called the Freedom Accelerator Program, which now it's national. And I've really been enjoying this a lot because we get people, much like you said, in my market, we can't find houses for this price. But then we also have people that live in these markets that where they are for that price. And so it's really been working out well within the group because some people that live in these markets that other people that are in California are buying in, now they're working together and filling them and, and you know putting out the signs for them and, and collaborating on deals. So it's really been good. I've been enjoying it a lot. We've only started this program online in January of this year, and it's been, like, it's been fantastic. I've really been enjoying it. Yeah. Um, I always like asking this question too. When you're, you've, you've been involved in real estate now for doing some public math, close to 30 years, um, a lot of talk right now in recession and interest rates, geopolitical, et cetera. How do you view the real estate market now? And what are some of the things that if I'm a first time investor or first time getting involved in real estate that I should be thinking through? So as far as the, the market itself, you know, everybody's like, what's going to happen? Is it going to crash? Is it going to keep going up and this and that? I believed going into the end of last year, I believe 2023, we were going into a downturn. I firmly believed it and it's still shooting up and nothing's changed. So the way I answer that question typically to most people is I tell them, I said, I said we're all going to find out at the exact same time and it's going to be a day after it happens. We're all going to find out. And it may not happen. You know, we just don't know. Because they prop up everything, it may not. It, it may not happen for another 10, 20 years. It may not happen. Period. We just don't know. But I will tell you, we're all going to find out at the same time. All the talking heads on TV, all the people that want to share their opinions on the internet, we're all making it up. The real answer is, we're going to find out a day after it happened. The other thing, when you mentioned um, a political and stuff, and that one of the things that's interesting that happened recently is during COVID, we really had a taste of. Um, we don't really own anything. You know, as much as I'm even free and clear, it was amazing that the government was able to tell us they don't have to pay and you can't do anything about it. And I'm like, but the law, the law, the law. And they said, not nah, the law. And, um, and that was interesting. And so that kind of that part does make me a little nervous that that the government had a taste of. We told them what to do and they did it. And uh, so now, you know, who knows what will happen next? But, um, you know, you can't at least my opinion matters. You can't worry about stuff like that. You, you got to. You make your own future and, and yes, stuff's going to change and will change with it and, and life will go on. Yeah. And control what you can control. And at the end of the day, I mean, I believe that all real estate goes up and to the right as long as you give it enough time. I can't tell you how long of a time you have to get it. And trust me that if your real estate property goes to zero, that you have much bigger problems out there to worry about than that property. Yeah. So. I agree with you a thousand percent. I mean, because in the end, they have to have a place to live. And even if people are like, oh, but the government's going to take, I said, even if the government was to take someone's real estate, they're going to pay for it. So, you know, I don't see any of that happening. But again, it's all the talking heads and we'll all find out a day after it happens. Yep. I like that. I, I don't see, I don't see answer. risk in real estate. That to me yep. is, there's a lot of risky things out there and real estate, you know, now there is risk. I'm sorry. I shouldn't say that. I don't see risk as real estate as your investment. There is risk in, in investing improperly in real estate, but as far as owning real estate, I don't see risk in it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, Scott, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? So I, I read a lot of books, but one of the ones, if you're going to ask my favorite, one of the few books I've read multiple times because I just enjoy it and I know you've read it, everybody's read it, is The 4-Hour Workweek. I, um, I really enjoy The 4-Hour Workweek and I think one of the reasons I enjoy it so much, I remember when it first came out, it just was a different way of thinking. And I, a lot of my life is adopted from that where I basically am all about freedom and I, I don't work much anymore at all. Like I'm lucky if I go a couple hours a week and, and I have a pretty awesome, unbelievable life. But it was because I, started, I stopped chasing to make the most money possible and started chasing just to have the best life possible. And I equate a lot of that to the four-hour work week. I enjoyed that book a lot. Yeah, it changed the way I think about things for sure. Our second one is, I believe the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have? You know, so it, it almost goes right back into the first question you just asked. One of the things that I think I equate a lot of my success to is reading. I, um, you know, I always, I, I always have this thought in my head, you know, when someone writes a book, they literally have the, the best stuff they have in their head, right? Their best stuff they put into that book. And yet we can get that for 20 bucks <laughs> and uh, 25 bucks, a couple of, you know, whatever it is. And, and so people that don't read, I'm like, you are missing out on the cheapest, easiest way to get somebody's best stuff. And, um, and I, I equate a lot of success to that. I'll tell you something else. I, I'm a fan of uh, Tony Robbins, Anthony Robbins. I, I know he changed his name at some point. Sometimes I say Anthony and people are like, who do you mean? And, um, and I remember when I was a kid, I, back when the cassette tapes, you know, I remember when I was like 13, I got one of those, one of those sets. And I used to play it every night when I went to sleep. I lost it. You know, I don't remember when I lost it, 17, 18, 19 years old, and it was put away somewhere. And then when I was moving houses, I found it. And I was like, oh, man, I still have this thing. And I popped it into my cassette player, and I played it. And I was, I, it was so long ago that I had listened to it, and I was amazed that so many things in there were like stuff I say. And I'm like, I didn't make that up. This, this is where I got it from. I, th I thought it was just me. I thought it was just the way I think. And I was like, no, that wasn't me. That was him. But I played it in my sleep over and over and over again. And, and I wonder sometimes about how much of my life now is equated to things like that, that I, I'm constantly, I'm a, you know, I love listening to stuff like that. I like, I like reading. I like self-help. You know, I like listening and, uh, and positive, positive things in your life, feeding yourself positivity. And, uh, and I wonder sometimes, you know, without a time machine, you'll never know, but how much success is attributed to that without you even knowing it. Yeah, we have two kids, five and seven, and that's one of the things that we talk a lot about right now is what is the inner dialogue and the inner monologue that we are giving them by talking to them. And I would encourage everybody to kind of think about that if they have younger kids around, like, what are you talking, how are you talking to them? What are you saying? Because those are the things that they're going to carry forward in the rest of their yep. life. Our third one is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? The, the, the borrower is slave to the lender. As simple as that. I, uh, I think about it all the time. You know, I have, a, I have a, a, a vision when I teach, when I do my seminars, and when I teach, I always I try and put this um, vision in people's head, and it's Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. You know Mr. Burns? Yeah. And I always tell him, I say, you can go to any city in the country and look at the tall buildings, and on the side of the tall buildings, there's bank logos, right? And I, and I try and envision it to them this way to, to transfer it into their minds. I say, picture Mr. Burns is sitting up there like this, right? And, um, and, and he has us being the conventional landlords and the people in debt 
running all over the place and, and filling the property, going to court who have to have, if they had to do an eviction, mowing the lawn, fixing the AC unit, doing all this work, collecting the money, and as soon as they get it, they send it on up to him. And he's just sitting here going, run along, run along, right? Send me the money. And in debt, and I'm sure you know this already, Matt, debt is the, the highest marketed product on the planet. There's more money spent to market you to get into debt than any other product there is. Well, that should tell you something. And it is amazing. And, and I used to be the opposite. I was the guy that, listen, if they'll finance me, I'll take it. I would walk into a call out and they'd say, no money down. I'll say, give me three. And, uh, you know, whatever it was, I, I was all about it. And I, it took me getting my, my butt beat to really change my tune on that. But now I live in a huge house on the water. I have no mortgage. I have no car payments. I have no credit card payments. And I do have some slow flip loans because that's on a five-year program. But I am I wish I knew that when I was younger. I wish I believed in it when I was younger, that, that debt is the enemy. And it sounds all great, and it's all sexy on paper. Use other people's money and get rich. But um, it's all great until it's not. Because, it, again, if you started in 2008, it's been great, and it stays great. Right now, it's only been this way, and it may stay that way for another 50 years. That's the whole thing. And if it does, then it's like, okay, well, Scott was wrong. You guys all made a fortune using leverage, which it may. You know, but if it doesn't, I'm too old to start over. I'm not starting over again. So yeah. Yeah. that's kind of where my head's at with that. Um, our fourth one is, what are you most proud of in your life? So, you know, besides, you know, obviously I was going to, my natural answer is going to be my son, my son and my family. But, um, but I, you know, I, I'm a, I didn't, we didn't get into my, my past, but I dropped out of school in 11th grade and I never, I've never been back to school. And I sometimes think about, and I know people still from school and I sometimes think about the, the magnitude of what we've accomplished. And I'm like, you know, and I, and I, and I, I'm sometimes beside myself with that. I'm like, I'm like, it's amazing what we, what we were able to accomplish without any of that degrees or training or certificates on the wall. Um, but ultimately my son's only 14. So, you know, ultimately that's, that's where the focus is on, on being proud, although he's still 14. So we don't have the end result just yet. <laughs> Yeah, wait four more years and ask the question again. <laughs> Our fifth and final one is yeah. if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Well, th this might be a controversial answer. I'm not sure, but it's somebody I really like. In a, in a, and a, again, and I read his book, which really was eye-opening to me too, was uh, I'm going to go with Elon Musk. And I know a lot of people dislike him, a lot of people like him and dislike him, but I, I really, I, I have a lot of respect for him and I really like, he's, he opens up your mind to thinking bigger than, than we even think is possible and I think I would get a lot of value out of that. And uh, if I was able to pick anyone to, to go have some chunky monkey with, I would, I would probably say it would be him. Two follow-up questions to that. Do he and Zuck end up fighting? And if so, who wins? Well, if they end up fighting, and, and again, I don't want, we, we don't watch the news at all in my house. Like we've had, we have no news, but I do get Good. through social media. And so I've seen it, but I don't know what's real and what's not. Um, if, so from what I've seen, it looks like it was happening, right? And, I'm, and if it was, I think it would be the highest watch thing ever. Um, and I would watch it myself. And obviously I would pull for Elon to win. I, I see, I have a vision in my head of the way, um, what's this, Zuck looks, and, I, and, but then I, I, don't, I really don't know, but I, I have to go with Elon winning. Have you seen Zuck recently? I did. I just saw one today yeah. with, with MMA fighters, and I was like, oh, yeah. well, I said, all right, but I still I have to still pull for Elon. So Yeah, dude's gotten, some, uh, he's gotten a little, little bit of muscle on him, and he's learned how to fight, too, it seems like. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Well, Scott, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you, or um, learn more about the Master Investor Academy, where is the best place we could point them? I, I apologize that I completely forgot to share this with you. So so I'm giving away to all of your listeners a free copy of The Art of the Slow Flip. So anybody who wants a copy can just go to slowflip.com, S-L-O-W-F-L-I-P.com, and get a free copy of the book. I have 200 of them printed, ready to go. And so Anybody who wants a free copy, just go to slowflip.com and just pay the shipping and handling. I think it's $7.95. Other than that, I am on all social media just under my own name. So I'm on, you know, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, you know, Twitter, LinkedIn. And what's the new one now? Um, Threads. Uh, Threads, yeah. So so basically, I'm on all of them under my name. So I'm easy enough to find. I always say just, just type in my name into any of them and it'll pop up. Perfect. Well, we'll leave some of those in the show notes. And then, Scott, thanks for coming on the show. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.